I want you to do me a favor as we begin the message. I want you to picture the, the, the birth of Jesus, like, in your head. Maybe not the birth of Jesus. That, that, that's weird. So picture the nativity scene after Jesus is born. Picture that scene in your head. You've seen it, like, in books. You've, you've probably seen it at different, maybe, churches or even in yards. What does that look like for you? Here's what I would guess. I would guess that you got, of course, little baby Jesus. And he's, he's, he's wrapped in snuggling clothes. And he's lying in a manger, probably on a soft bed of hay. And you've got probably pictured in your head Mary and Joseph on his left and his right. Right next to the little trough that Jesus is in. And you, you might even have some animals in there. Maybe a donkey or maybe a chicken over here. That's okay too. Um, you might even have an angel hovering above baby Jesus. And the angel might be glowing and giving off this soft uh, yellow light towards Jesus. And that's all good too, I think. If you have three wise men, like, in the scene, that's not good. Like, that's wrong. And I'll tell you why in this message um, about the three wise men. They wouldn't have been there when Jesus was born. They, in fact, the wise men would have showed up when Jesus was probably 12 to 18 months old, scholars believe, is when, when they would have finally got there. So they're not there when little baby Jesus is in the little snuggling cloth wrapped in a manger. They're not there. They're, they're, I don't know what they're doing, but they're not there for like a, a year, year and a half. Toddler Jesus. Imagine that. Imagine giving toddler Jesus a bath. Jesus, stop walking on the water. Get in it. It's bedtime, right? I mean, you'd have all kinds of struggles. Um, by the way, does anybody have a toddler at home right now? Who, who, any toddler families? You reluctantly raise your hand. Okay, I understand. Okay, a few of you. Some of you are scared. Right there, yeah. Yeah, Sloan, little Sloan. She's an angel, though. I can't, she's an angel, isn't she? She could be little. Anyway, so she's, uh, she's, what am I saying here? Oh, oh yeah, so toddlers. So, so Jess, you know that, you know the difference between a toddler and a terrorist is just their size, right? That's the only difference. If you've got a toddler at home, you know that. Um, I will tell you something. Nativity scenes, they're out of control. Not only do I go backwards in my walk with Jesus when I see the wise men in them, the other day I saw Santa Claus in one. Okay? That's so, why don't, if we're gonna put Santa Claus in the nativity scene, why don't we just shove like the Easter Bunny, the Jolly Green Giant, the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, and your mama? Put them all in there. If you're gonna go, go big. That's what I say. Put, and let's just have fun with it. They're all worshiping Jesus. But they weren't. The wise men weren't there. And the scripture that I'm going to show you, that I'm going to give to you, well, first of all, how many gifts did the wise men have? Three, yeah. How many wise men were there? Three, right? No, there weren't. Right? There were three gifts, but we don't know how many wise men there were. So I'm blowing your mind right now, aren't I? So we, there, there would have been more than three. We do know that. Because they traveled a long distance with a lot of expensive stuff in a place that was known for, to, to have thieves all over the place. So they would have traveled with a caravan of people, not just three, but we think three because there were three gifts. But here's what I find interesting about the, the magi. That's another word for the wise men, these astrologers that, that were into the stars. Here's what's crazy about this. These guys would have been rich. We know that from the gifts that they gave. They would have been learned or scholarly men. They would have been very smart individuals. Um, so they, they have a lot of brains and they have a lot of money, but yet they're still seeking something to fulfill them. They would still travel through, through a uh, uh, rough terrain many months to go see this toddler king because something in them was missing. I wonder who I'm preaching here today. I wonder who I'm preaching to here today. 
You might be watching online. Uh, maybe it's years from now, but it's the season, and you're, you're hurting, and you're struggling. Maybe you're in the room, and there's things going on. It looks good on the outside. You've got all, plenty of stuff, and your garage is full, and your house is full, and you've got all the, all, all the things, but you're missing something in you. That was them. Why are these guys aren't even... I mean, they're not Jewish men. They have no business even really, really being there, but they're brought there through this star that they're following. It's crazy. Let me set the tone with the scripture that this entire series centers around, the gifts of Christmas. Matthew 2, verse 10 and 11. When they saw a star, these wise men, they were filled with joy. They entered the house, okay? They didn't enter a cave, they didn't enter this little dwelling. They entered a home now. So they entered the house and they saw the child, not a little baby, but now a child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshiped him. They opened gifts. They opened their treasure chests. Do you know this is the first time I've ever caught this? It's chests, plural. I always just assumed it was like one chest with the gifts, but there was so much that they brought. Each gift has its own chest. They opened their treasure chests and gave gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These gifts that they give, they seem unusual, don't they? I mean, the gold I kind of get, you know, it's, it's valuable. Um, but, but the others, it seems strange that you would give a gift like that. But I'll tell you um, that each gift was significant. Each gift meant something big time for the life of Jesus. And we're going to start with, with a gift of myrrh. So turn to, turn to two people and say myrrh. Let's just say myrrh. My wife's over there saying burr because she's almost cold. But Jody, it's not burr. It's myrrh is what we're talking about. Myrrh is interesting. Let me tell you a little bit about it. Myrrh um, was a... <laughs> it's so weird, by the way. You think about giving a toddler these gifts. What's Jesus going to do with, 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 with these gifts? But as we talk about myrrh, I wrote down, I wrote down three things that it is. It's a, it's a valuable substance that would have been a spice that was used for um, antiseptic or a numbing agent. It would be used for that. It would also be used for uh, a fra just a, a regular fragrance, fragrance like essential oils. It would be one of your top sellers. For those of you that are networking essential oils, you would love it. It was a top-selling oil. It's referred to, this, this word myrrh, is referred to like at least 16 times in the Bible. Did you know that? It's not just the Christmas story, but many times. And many of the references in the Bible are in the book Song of Solomon. Okay? Now, Song of Solomon, if any book in the Bible is kind of risque, it would be Song of Solomon. Okay? It's a little... Okay, I'm just going to... I'll read you a couple verses that have the, the word myrrh in them out of Song of Solomon, just to give you context of this, of this fragrant spice. Song, Song of Solomon 5.5, 5. I jumped up to open the door for my love. Okay, this is so weird. And my hands dripped with perfume. Well, you might be wearing a little too much. Anyway, so my fingers dripped with lovely myrrh as I pulled back the bolt. I mean, listen to this. Guys are like, dang, I'll read this at night to my wife. It'll be, yeah, whatever. So, so I mean, I just think about that. So Song of Solomon, Solomon had 700 wives. Like, it's obvious maybe why he did. And you might think, oh man, 700 women, that'd be so awesome. You know what that also means? 700 mother-in-laws, okay? Is it really awesome? You gotta ask yourself. So, so one more Song of Solomon with myrrh in it. His cheeks 
are like gardens of spices, giving off fragrance. His lips are like, like lilies perfumed with myrrh. Okay, that is enough. Is he getting hot in here, or is it just me? All right, so myrrh. Say myrrh. Myrrh. But one of the main uses for myrrh, other than being the perfume, other than being this numbing agent or antiseptic, one of the main uses was for death. It was for burial. It was a spice that was used to literally anoint and prepare a dead body, which makes the gift to Jesus even more strange. I'm sorry, but it, it, that would be like you going to your best friend's like, kid's birthday party, and, and, and little Billy's turning one, and, and you bring embalming, embal, embalming fluid, okay? That's what it is. Billy opens it up all excited. What, what's this? Parents are like, oh, what's that? Oh, that's embalming fluid. You know, someday Billy's going to die, and you can use that. Okay, here's what I know about you. You're not going to Billy's second birthday. So you're not going. You're not invited. That is such a strange gift. But that's, that's, the, that's the reason the wise men brought it. It's because it's symbolizing Jesus as the sacrificial lamb of God. Myrrh symbolizing the death of a king. That's why they brought it. And they had no idea. And Mary and Joseph, I don't think they were even thinking that when they got it. But that's what it was about. I want to preach to you today, mainly out of the Old Testament, out of a beautiful book called Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet that God would speak through, and then Isaiah would speak to the people. Here's what's crazy about what I'm going to read to you. This, well, let me back up. Let's pretend that I, I, I could predict the future. Like, when it comes to Super Bowl winners, I could predict who's going to win. Now, actually, this year, it's not tough. The Cowboys, right? But, but I mean, other years. Okay, settle down. We know who it's not, right? Broncos. Anyway, so, uh, um, sorry, I had to say it. Uh, so, okay, so I could predict the Super Bowl winners, not just next year, but the year after and the year after. Like, 700 years from now, I'm still predicting them. Okay, if that was the case, I'd have every bookie, every gambler, every person knocking down, beating down my door for answers. That's what Isaiah's doing. Isaiah's predicting what goes down in the life of Jesus 700 years before Jesus even exists, exists on the earth, I should say. Isn't that crazy? People will say, how do you know the Bible's real? How do you know the Bible's true? Here's one reason. Every prophecy, every prediction in the word of God has come true. And the ones that haven't, just haven't happened yet. The, how in the world is this possible? So Isaiah 53, listen to, what he, listen to what God is doing through Isaiah as he writes this down. And Isaiah starts with a problem that you and I have. I'll start in the sixth verse. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We've all left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him... Jesus, the sins of us all. Isaiah opens right away by calling us sheep. Now that's not a compliment. And that's coming from a guy who has a soft, soft place in his heart for sheep. That sounds weird, actually. I say that because we raised sheep growing up on a farm. And I've showed you pictures, but I, don't, I haven't showed you this one. This is Monty and a sheep. Look at that. Aw. Oh, I don't know what's going on, but it's, it's still a cute picture. So, but sheep... See, I want, when someone describes me as an animal, I don't want to be a sheep. I want to be like a, a roaring lion or a majestic eagle. But a sheep, again, not complimentary. Sheep are three things. I thought about this. There are three things. They are, they are directionless, which I can relate to that part. They're directionless, 
They're defenseless. And quite frankly, they're dumb. Sheep are not smart. Again, from a guy that used to have sheep on the farm, I know this for a fact. And, and I'll, I'll show you a quick clip. I've showed this before. But some of, you don't, some of you don't go to church every week, so you might have missed it. But check out, this is an example of how smart sheep are. So bad, isn't it? I mean, come on. I, that is embarrassing. So I'll tell you a quick story. That This is a true story. You can Google it. Don't Google it now. Do it later. In 2005, in Turkey, right? This is where the Bible setting is. In Turkey, in 2005, I want to get the number right. It was obscene. 1,500 sheep followed one another off a cliff. For real. 1,500 sheep just off a cliff to their death. Wouldn't you, okay, wouldn't you think like after number 30, like Bob would be up there like, gosh, dang it. Don't, you know what? What the heck? And he just goes. I'm like, wouldn't you finally just, wouldn't you say, you know what? Here's what's really funny about the story. 1,500 fell off the cliff. Only 450 of the sheep died. Do you know why? Yeah. The, the, the stupider sheep created a pillow. Boing, boing. I mean, it's just, you can't make this stuff up. But, but, but think about, we hear the word sheep today, and, and follower, right? And, and many times you'll hear media uh, or sheep, or people are talking about people that are following people like sheep. And many times we do, blindly, not even knowing where we're going. Like when my kids tell me, oh, God, Dad, oh, everybody's doing it. All the kids are doing it. I'm like, you should do the opposite. Like, run the other way. I remember doing a series one time talking about following, and uh, I can't remember the stat. It was like 80%. Of people have no direction. Like, like they, they have no direction of where they're going. They don't know their purpose, right? They don't, they don't set any goals. And just, they're just going day by day, wherever the day leads them. And I'm like, why would you, why would you want to follow the masses? They have no idea where they're going. Here's an idea. Follow Jesus. He knows exactly where he's going. And you would be in for the ride of your life. I promise you. Getting ahead of myself. I'm getting excited because Jesus excites me. He should you too. So, but back to, the, back to the scripture, Jesus is known as the good shepherd. You might know that. Without a good shepherd, the sheep are helpless and hopeless. 1,500 sheep, sheep off a cliff, helpless and hopeless. And I'm here to tell you something. For you and I, without Jesus, you and I, we are helpless and we are hopeless. And eventually, without him, you might feel like you're having a good day or things are going okay in your life. But eventually, I promise you, you will come upon a cliff. And you will go off. Because we need a shepherd. Let's continue in the book of Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus is born. He was oppressed and treated harshly. Yet he never said a word. Jesus was led like a lamb before the slaughter. Talk about... Get, as, as you may know, Jesus is getting set up here for something that is, is not good uh, in the temporal sense. Have you ever felt like you've been set up? You ever felt like you've been misunderstood? Maybe, maybe you're confused or you've been hurt or rejected? You ever felt like that? That's how Jesus was in this moment. I remember launching Meadows Church five years ago 
One of the things we did when we launched in October 2017 is a few of us went to Shadow Lake in Papillion and we filmed a quick video, 90 seconds, just, hey, inviting people. If you don't have a church home, come check out Meadows. We'd love to have you. And uh, so we sent the video out on social media and I like, I put it out on our, you know, you have neighborhood like groups and social media. I put it out on that. And isn't it interesting how we as a people, there can be a hundred good things, but we'll find the two that aren't good and focus on it? Am I the only one? I mean, so there's all these comments, uh, uh, and, and I, I go to the one where th- this, this person is saying, and this, I don't remember the comment exactly, but it was something like, why would we ever come to your church or th- that church when we know we're, we're not welcome or loved? And I'm like, you know, and, and after looking further into it, this person was gay. So Hurting people hurt people. I believe that's a true statement. So I don't, I've never, I'd never met them. Uh, didn't, they'd never been to Meadows because we hadn't launched yet. But yet they'd assume that we're not going to be welcome or loved. Well, I'm guessing they maybe had some past where that's happened, right? So, so I get it. But then I felt misunderstood. I'm like, they don't know us. They don't know me. God, if they knew our church and who we let in, we, we take in all comers, don't we? I mean, I look in the mirror every day and I can't believe I get into the church. It's just amazing. But I'm telling you, Jesus welcomed everybody is what I'm trying to say. And we do too. Regardless of where you've been, regardless of what you've done, regardless of who you've been with, regardless of your past, regardless of your mistakes, you are not only welcome at Meadows Church, you are wanted at Meadows Church. Gosh, I want them to know it. And then the other comment that some guy's like, uh, hey, keep stop pushing your religion on this website. I thought to myself, how about I drive over to your house and lay hands on you, buddy? You know, in the name of Jesus. I just, I'm just kidding. I, I'm too scared to do that. But uh, I, I felt tough saying it. I'm like, you don't know. I'm not pushing nothing. But anyway, you just focus on the negative. I, feel, I felt misunderstood in those moments. Jesus would have felt misunderstood. I want to give you a few verses before what I just read. 53 through 50, or chapter 53, verses 3 through 5. Listen to this. He was despised and rejected. This is Jesus, the Lamb of God. A man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. And you might say, wait a minute, don't include me in that. Well, I think we can't include you and me in that. Because I can almost guarantee you, if we were in that setting in that moment, we would have done it. That's That's a whole other topic, though. He was despised. We didn't care. Yet it was our weak, it, it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God. No, no, no. A punishment for his sins, for his own sins. But they weren't. He didn't have any. He was pierced for our transgressions, for our sin, for our rebellion, crushed for our sin. He was beaten so that we could be made whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. I'm I'm convinced of one thing today. For you and I to appreciate the gift of Christmas and the gift that God has for you, we have to truly understand the depths of our sin. We have to understand the seriousness of our sin. Sin is treated more flippantly now than it ever has been. Like, like, like it's just common, and, and how dare you even look at me differently if I'm doing something that, that goes against the word of God. But we don't understand what it does to us and the damage it does. Look what it did to Jesus. We need to understand the gravity of sin. Because if you don't ever understand the gravity of sin, I I don't think we'll ever appreciate the goodness of God and his grace. 
I sent an email out this week with a warning that we're going to show a clip. So if you didn't get the email and you have like kids in the room, like you might want to check them into kids ministry now or send them in the prayer room or something. But we're going to show a clip for about 90 seconds. And you might think, well, if it's such a bad clip, it's not bad. It's, it's, it's good for you and me. There's some things I can't articulate. There's some things that the reason God has given us eyes to see is because we take stuff in differently through, through vision. And the clip you're going to see is a scourging or a part of a whipping from G- that Jesus gets. The movie The Passion of the Christ came out years ago. I've read a lot of commentaries and, and things on it, and um, I've seen the movie multiple times. It, it might be the closest depiction ever on film of what Jesus went through. So some say it's not graphic enough, it's not violent enough. The, the scene you're going to see is one of the tamer scenes, just so you know. I'm not showing you the most graphic. It, it gets way worse than what you're going to see. But I think we need to understand the gravity of what Jesus went through before we can appreciate the gift that God has for us. So just take 90 seconds and check this out. That was the tamer, 90 seconds. The scene, I think, lasted over six minutes. If you've never seen the movie, they beat him so bloody that he's hanging there on that pole, and then the Roman guards tells him to flip him over. And then they give him the same beating on his stomach. So, and his face, and everywhere. And his mom, Mother Mary, portrayed there. You can see her watching her son get get pummeled. It's unreal, and that doesn't do it justice. When we understand the magnitude of the suffering of Jesus, when we when we'll understand the depths of his love. It's. I think when we start to get it, it'll start to move us. I think it will. It'll move us from becoming, from being maybe a casual Christian, or like we talked about in the series last time, the unsaved Christian, a cultural Christian. I think when we understand that, it'll move us from like coming to church when it's convenient, or praying when we feel like it, or praying when we need something. When we understand, I wrote down, when we understand all that Jesus went through for us, the only appropriate response is for us to fall at the feet of a king and give him worship and give him praise. It's all I can, that's the only thing I can do. I, can, I have nothing to give. Just me. Nothing. So before Jesus is whipped, last night I was reading in Mark um, I forget, maybe 14 or 15, it's, it's Jesus is the, just finished with the Last Supper and he goes into the garden. And it's crazy. The, the, the torture began long before the whips hit him. Jesus is in the garden. And if you don't know the story, he is struggling. Like he's like, did I put any of the, let's, I think I put some. I, he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And then the Bible describes Jesus uh, sweating what appears to be drops of blood. Drop, I mean, think of the anguish as he thinks about what's going to happen. And think about this. Have you ever felt betrayed? You ever felt like your friends turned on you? Like they used to be a friend, now they're not anymore? Everybody left Jesus. His closest friends would betray him and deny him. Oh, you just mean Judas and Peter. No, no, no. I mean all of them. They all left. That's what the Word of God says. Jesus gets arrested in the garden. They run. They, they mock Jesus. They throw a crown of thorns on him, push it into his scalp, put a purple robe on him, and start punching him relentlessly in the face. Isaiah even describes them pulling out, plucking out his beard, 
ripping it out. I know it's graphic, but it's the word of God. Once Jesus is done getting beaten and pummeled, like the little clip you saw, they take a, 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 a part of the cross, a beam of the cross, and they strap it to his shoulders, probably weighed over 100 pounds, and, and they force him to walk up this, this 650 yards to a place where they can kill him. And, and, and he looks like that, and, he, and he's, how he even accomplished that, I don't know, and assumed it. Well, he didn't. He needed help from a man uh, from Cyrene, had to help him because he was falling down so much. So, so he's carrying it up the cross, and it's crazy because at this point, the creation mocks the creator. It, it's like nothing you've ever seen before. I, I wrote down falsely accused, crown of thorns, beaten, whipped, and he gets to the place where they're going to put him on a cross, and this is something you may have never seen before. Before they nail him on the cross, they offer him the gift. I kid you not, they offer Jesus a reprieve. I mean, for them to offer him, um, well, let me, let me read it to you in Scripture first. Mark 15, 23, he gets up the hill. They offered him wine drugged with myrrh. There it is. Jesus refuses it. Why? He declines to take it. Why? Because he needed to, he needed to take on the full brunt of our sin. <laughs> One more thing that separates you and I from Jesus, Right? I don't, I don't care who you are or whether you drink, don't drink, have done drugs or don't do drugs, in recovery, not in recovery. If, you, if you're in Jesus' shoes right there, standing in a pool of blood, you're taking whatever they give you. And so am I. Like, kill the pain. If they offer paint chips, I'm eating them and asking for another round. I'm just doing it. Jesus doesn't. He turns down the gift. To, to numb the pain. And how bad the enemy's offering him. They must look at you. They're like, this dude needs something. Like, he, he, he ain't going to make it to the cross. We better help. And they hate him. And they're offering him um, an anesthetic. Jesus says no. And that wasn't the worst part. And the worst part wasn't when they nailed him to the cross or that he's hanging on the cross for six hours, asphyxiating. Only, only, only way he's keeping himself alive is by pushing on his legs so he can breathe for six hours. That wasn't the worst of it. You know what the worst of it was? Is when the father left him. That was the anguish. That was what he was foreseeing in the garden of Gethsemane when he was dripping what appeared to be drops of blood. And you're like, why would the father leave the son? He had to. See, the gravity of sin, God could have nothing to do with it. Nothing. Nothing. And Jesus is taking on all your sin and my sin and everybody else's that have ever lived the Bible says he took on so much sin, he became sin. I don't even, I can't articulate that to you. I don't know what that looks like. Jesus does. So Jesus becomes sin. He's he stained with sin, not his, yours and mine, and everybody else's. And the father, in a moment, leaves the son. They've been together forever. Forever they've been together. So think about that. Jesus, even in his humanness, Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? Why have you abandoned me? The humanness of Jesus. And, 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 and the father turning his, son on the, or turning his back on the son. It's unbelievable. We continue with Isaiah 53. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants. That his life was cut short midstream. 33 years old. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong. And he had never deceived anyone. 
but he was buried like a criminal, put in a rich man's grave. Pause. How would Isaiah know these things? Even to the detail of knowing that Jesus would be put in a rich man's grave? 700 years before it happens. We continue. But it was the, okay, what I'm about to read next will blow you away, and you'll be like, is that really God? It is, and I'll explain. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him, to cause him grief. It was the Lord's good plan. It wasn't good for Jesus in the moment. Certainly good for you and for me. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. And he will enjoy a long life. And the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by the anguish that he went through, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible. He's making it possible for many, that many includes you and that many includes me, to be counted righteous for he will bear all of their sin. I love that word all. Not just some of our sin, not just the, 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 the front half of our sins, not just the little sins, but Jesus Christ came to bear every one of your sins, every, past, present, and future. It is unbelievable what Isaiah is penning through God's inspiration. This is so crazy. 700 years. And then when Jesus actually came to earth at Christmas and he was born, he kept, he kept predicting it. He kept telling his followers, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be killed. I'm going to rise up. I'm gonna be he says it over and over. Mark, Mark 8, 31. I'm referencing a lot of Mark. I'm just reading it right now. One example. Then Jesus began to tell them, that the Son of Man, him, must suffer terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. That he would be killed. He's telling it right to them. But three days later, he would rise from the dead. They couldn't, they, it was so out of the realm, they couldn't comprehend it. So crazy that, that even Peter, after Jesus said that, Peter like, <laughs> Peter like took Jesus aside and, and rebuke Jesus. Okay. Can we agree there are things you don't do? Okay. There are things you just, like, putting ketchup on a steak. I mean, things you don't do, right? Now, if you're doing that, repent before you leave, honestly. Driving slow in the left lane, my lane. Things you don't do. That's, like, that's demonic when you do that. So, and, and, and the biggest thing you never do, and this is just free advice, take it or leave it, but I would take it. But you never take a sleeping pill in a laxative at the same time, okay? Never do it. <laughs> it is a messy situation, okay? Ask, ask Bryce, you know. So, anyway, so, i just kidding. All right, so, but, but they, they didn't understand it. I want to I wanna tell you what sets Christianity apart. There's a lot of things, actually, but a big part of what sets Christianity apart from all the other religions is a bloody cross, and a creator who died for his creation. That sets Christianity apart. If you're wondering, maybe you're, you're on the verge of believing or you don't know, you need to know these things. Who died for, died for you, died for me. Died for us, for all of us, like it said. For your sin, for my dysfunction, for your mess, for our, our mistakes, everything. Our rebellion. He died for it all. Murdered, you could say, right? For our mess. 
But was he really murdered? I mean, he was killed. That's murder. But the thing is, it, I don't know if it was quite, you could count it as murder because there were some guys that were in on it. Like, like the father, he was in on it. The Holy Spirit, he was in on it. Even Jesus was in on it. You don't take the life of a king without the king giving up his life. Not a king named Jesus. In John, this is so, listen to this. John 10, 18, Jesus is speaking to his followers. No one can take my life from me. No one. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. For I have the authority to lay it down again when I want to and then take it back up again. Oh, I should have mentioned earlier, a bloody cross isn't the only thing that's, that, that sets out Christianity. You better also include an empty tomb because three days later, that dead king came back to life. For you and for me, this church is the reason that hope is abound and that you can have it and I can have it. The word of God is alive and active. Jesus, the good shepherd. Remember what he said? I laid on my life. Oh, you think you killed me? You think you murdered me? You can think that all you want. I did it voluntarily. I am the good shepherd. I laid down my life for my sheep. That sheep is you and me. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. A suffering servant. The lamb of God. A sacrifice that had, had to be made. As you get into God's word, I hope you're getting into God's word. If you're not, get into a life group so you can. You'll understand the significance of a dead lamb. That's what they would use at, at Passover to signify uh, the, their, their, the, the Jews' exodus out of slavery. And they would celebrate with that. And they, they would also use a, a dead lamb and dead animals to cover, cover sins once a year as, as they would sin. They needed the blood of something that was perfect and good and they would use these animals the best that they had. We don't do that anymore because Jesus was the final sacrifice because he did what no one else can do. He took your place. That should be you and I on the screen, what you just saw. Oh, come on. Understand the gravity of sin. The more society shifts in a direction, the more normal it's going to appear. It, so the more abnormal you should appear and I should appear. Back to the beginning. Three, I was going to say three wise men, but I would have been biblically inaccurate, wouldn't I? Wise men with three gifts, astrologers, fall at the feet of a toddler and they give their best. I wrote down, I said, they worship Jesus for who he was. This is the essence of worship. Honoring Christ for who he is and being willing to give him what's valuable to you and me. That's part of the year in faith offering. God, how can I hold back anything on you? I will give my best and I will trust you. I wonder if you feel like I felt when I, when I gave my life to Christ. I remember feeling so unworthy. Like maybe when you saw Jesus getting beat and whipped, you think, my God, that's so horrific. He did that for me? And the truth is he did. But you don't feel worthy maybe. And maybe you feel like a fraud. And maybe you're living that double life. And maybe you are living in sin. And maybe you do have secrets. And you're like, Christmas isn't a good time for me because I've got all this stuff going on and I know that I'm a mess and I know that I'm jacked up. 
you can still worship him. I posted something this week about who's invited to Meadows and how we want all the messed up, jacked up, addicted, screwed up convicts and mess ups here. My sister posted something of response and it hit me because I don't know, I could, I could relate to it because even, even as your pastor, there's days I feel not worthy to even give you a word of God. So this story, it's quick. This is for any of you that feel less than right now. Any of you that feel broken right now and maybe Christmas, the most wonderful, joyous time of the year, you don't feel it. You don't see it. The story says this. The year my dad, who was a pastor at the time, was caught in his addiction, the church leadership asked him and my mom not to attend Christmas Eve service. Don't you love it? Christians, aren't we great at shooting our wounded? What's wrong with us? Shouldn't we embrace people and love them? I'm not, don't condone what they're doing, but that, that hit me. Maybe that hit me so hard because I'm a pastor. I'm like, so don't come. Don't come to The investigation was ongoing and they wanted him to step back while it happened. What they didn't count on, I don't think, was for me to show up at the service. I have a deep commitment to the tradition. So when my parents said we weren't going to service, I resolved to go by myself. Under the weight of uncertainty and the fear of what I had suspected might be a true accusation against my father, I showed up to the candlelight service. Families were there to celebrate. It was Christmas after all. There's trees and lights. Things are decorated. I found my usual spot at the front. And as the first carols rang out, my tears began to fall. I felt like an imposter. I was a cloud of grief and darkness amidst a cheerful celebration. I felt guilty for even being there and dampening the time of people rejoicing. As I sat by myself... I told Jesus, I'm ruining your party. It was his response in the moment that changed Christmas for me forever. He told me, I came to that manger as a baby, not for those in celebration, but for those in mourning. I came for you. In this moment, right here. For the first time in my relatively easy life, I was tasting heartache And oh, more would be coming. And it was there that Jesus showed me the heart of Christmas. Jesus stepped down to pursue the broken and the hurting and the lost. If this year broke you down, isolated you, left you grieving or fearful or hurt, I want you to know that you don't have to muster up cheer. You don't have to feel like a a downer in the midst of a celebration. You can sit at the feet of a Savior who came for you right where you're at right now. That's how Emmanuel, God with us, works. It's God with us in the mess, in the dirt, in the struggle, giving us hope in the face of despair. Do we have issues? Yep. Do you got problems? Yep. But I'll encourage you and I with how I always encourage you and I, don't let what's wrong with you 
stop you from worshiping what's right with God because he is good and he is worthy in the ups and the downs. He is worthy in the good and the bad. He is worthy in the sickness and the health in all things. Our God is worthy of praise. I can't hear you. Somebody get loud. Thank you, Lord. You are worthy. And church, you would be insane not to respond to the word of God. Don't let what Jesus went through be for naught. He did it for you and for me. Surrender everything. I'll tell you every week, you are saved by God's grace, that amazing gift that you and I don't deserve. Through your faith, believing the word of God and the resurrection and death of Jesus is real. If you believe it and want to surrender to it, the second step is repenting and, and turning from that and not wanting to live that way anymore. You can start today. Connect cards that Rachel showed you. Fill them out. Turn them into guest services. Prayer requests, write them down. In a second, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna praise and worship God. And the song we're singing, it's about a woman who fell at the feet of Jesus and her life was jacked, but she still fell at his feet and worshiped him. And you know what she did? She gave all she had. The best she had, she gave. How can you respond to the word of God today? Give him all of you. All of you. Surrender everything. There's no other way. Gee, there's one door to heaven. His name is Jesus. There is no other way. And heaven can begin on earth today if you surrender everything to him. I love you. I love being your pastor. I love this time of year. And even though this was... <laughs> a message maybe more on the death of Jesus, we need to understand the significance of the gifts and understand the gravity of when we mess up and what it does, and then we'll appreciate the gift that God has for you. Father, in the name of your son, Jesus, I thank you for your word and your truth. I thank you for, for having men and, and women write down and record, men like Isaiah, and Matthew and Mark, they wrote these things down through your inspiration so we knew what happened. We knew what was done. We don't have to guess, is he good? We can see it. We don't have to guess, did Jesus really die? It says it. Did Jesus really rise? Yes, he did it. We get the privilege of knowing. Now we just need to believe by faith and step into it. God, for the person who is hurting and struggling, I pray that this message, it filled them with hope and life. And God, I pray that our response, the only response we can give is one of giving. Whatever you ask, whatever it is, all of us to you in whatever way you tell us to do it. We just want to be obedient and watch what you do. If we do, the world will never be the same. And the best is yet to come. In Jesus' name I pray and we all say, amen. Hey, I want to thank you so much for watching today, but don't stop there. I wanna invite you to like or subscribe to this channel so you don't miss a single video, update, or message. But not only that, share this message with a friend. I mean, there are so many people out there hurting, struggling, and you have the ability to make an impact in their life. And finally, if, you're, if you live in the Omaha area, I wanna encourage you, come join us on a weekend service. We would love, love to meet you. God bless you.